You can turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we will be. Verses 3 through 12 is our text this morning. We began this journey on uh, moving through this Easter series. We began two weeks before Easter in preparing our hearts. We started in 1 Corinthians 15. They're seeing the obvious importance of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection that Paul lays out there for the church at Corinth. We then, the next week, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we see we have been given this precious treasure in jars of clay. And this precious treasure is the gospel that is preached through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the importance of clinging to the resurrection and never losing our sight of it. And then last week, as we celebrated the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, we were in Colossians 1, where we saw the preeminent resurrected Christ and beheld the glory laid out for us there in Colossians 1. And now this is our final sermon here in this Easter series. And we find ourselves once again in 1 Peter chapter 1. And Christians throughout the ages have found themselves constantly at odds with the world around us. As the gospel calls us to live in such a way as to be so countercultural that we can't help but be at odds with the world around us. There will be a, a consistent and constant friction between how we live our lives in accordance with God's word and how the culture and what the culture says is the standard by which we should or can live our lives. So much so that if you proclaim to be a Christian and you find yourself comfortable, consistently comfortable in this world, you may need to reevaluate that claim. That's how clear that is in God's Word. And even the most cursory glance at the headlines is enough to make us uneasy and wondering how God is at work in it all. And this morning's text speaks straight to exactly how we should approach our stead in life. How should we approach the, the disturbing things that we see, the mounting cultural pressure against Christians in our nation, but then also the consistent and continued persecution of Christians around the world? How should we approach that? How should we look at our stead in life? Our text this morning speaks directly to that. And our text this morning points to the resurrection as the seminal historical reality which so imprints us that we can't help but stand out in a world of chaos. And so I'll ask you once again to stand as you are able in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials 
So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we seek to better understand the truths which we just read in your word, I pray that you would illuminate our minds, focus our hearts, pierce our hearts where necessary, move us to repentance. I pray, Lord, that if there be anyone here who does not know this unfading, undefiled hope that we have through the resurrection of Christ, that you would move them this morning, draw them to yourself in repentance, and bless them with faith that endures. Pray, God, that you would continue to bless this time for the edification of your church, the glorification of your name, that we might walk in obedience to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, again, last week we rejoiced in the resurrection and we looked at the impact of the resurrection on one character in particular. Particularly, we, we, we looked at this, yes, in, in our, our sermon time, but we also looked at this at our sunrise service. Right? We looked at the character of Peter. Peter goes from adamantly declaring his loyalty to Christ to falling asleep as Christ is praying to zealously defending Christ to categorically denying Christ weeping bitterly at his own betrayal to sprinting to the tomb in unbelief and then seeing the resurrected Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And then what happens next as we see in Acts is Peter preaches with boldness Christ and him crucified and resurrected, leading to the onset of the local church. Now we come to 1 Peter, a letter written by the very Peter who had his life radically changed by the reality of the resurrection. But this letter comes much later after those events. Peter here is writing to Christians that are dispersed abroad. That's what he even says there in the first verse, to the dispersion, right? And so uh, these believers that he's writing to are dispersed abroad at the very edge of the spread of the gospel. That they are the very spear tip on how far the gospel has spread, meaning that they are few particularly at the, the different cities where they're located. And this is coming at a time of great persecution. Peter here is the author. Therefore, we can include by some of the references in the letter that it's most likely written during the reign of Emperor Nero. 
one of the cruelest and most active persecutors of the church. And so around AD 62, Peter, writing from Rome, writes this letter to these believers on the tip of the spear, experiencing extreme persecution. In chapter 5, he refers to Rome, where he's writing from, as Babylon. And he writes to these believers that are scattered few in enduring this great persecution. And I want to reference us there to the introduction to the letter because it greatly enlightens why he points the church to the resurrection as the reason for the great hope that is within us. And so you can see there in the introduction to his letter, those first two verses, which we did not read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so there he identifies himself, to those who are elect exiles. That's an interesting choice of words there. We'll come back to that. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is not just a, a small city that he's writing to, but a large region in which Christians are scattered throughout according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he writes to these churches, these believers, saying you're suffering and you want answers. You want escape. You want hope. And what does he tell them? That they are exiles. Look there again. I, I pointed out that phrasing. Those who are elect exiles. Chosen exiles. Exiles by the providential design of God. And so before we begin to unpack today's text, I want to point out a couple of truths that have been evident over the last four weeks, but which we've also built up to here and are evident in our text today. So we see here God's providential work. That he's, he, Peter wants this, these believers not to think that the, the persecution that they are experiencing is by happenstance. But he wants them to know that they have providentially been brought to repentance, believed in the resurrection of Christ, and acknowledged Christ as Lord in this day and time for this purpose, that they be exiles. On the tip of the spear, boldly and enduringly living out their faith in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to what? The foreknowledge of God. Again, the providential purposes of God the Father. And notice how Peter points these believers to the, the grounding foundation that is the Trinity, the triune God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, so there's purpose in this persecution that they're experiencing, that they are being sanctified in this of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, reminding them and grounding them in the crucifixion of Christ. So God's providential working of the resurrection grounds our understanding of the Spirit's sanctifying work and focuses our obedience to Christ. So we can see the triune Godhead at work in this providential working. And I want us to also then begin to understand that this moves to our life as well in the day and time in which the Lord has brought us to salvation. 
So again, I'm pointing it to, out to us before we dive in and unpack this text. I want, I want to point out to us two truths. The first one there on your outline is that the resurrection is the key to understanding Christ's lordship. The resurrection is the key to understanding Christ's lordship. We, we built up to this truth. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians 15. We've seen this in 2 Corinthians 4. We saw this last week in Colossians 1. And we're seeing it here this morning as we prepare to unpack this text. That the resurrection is the key to understanding Christ's lordship. If we lose our emphasis, our focus, or our rejoicing in the resurrection... We lose Christ as Lord. For if he is not raised and seated at the right hand of God the Father, then he is still in the grave. Therefore, causing all he has said to be null and void. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, is what Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 15. So, here's the second truth that I want to point us to before unpacking today's text. As we've looked at many, many references throughout the New Testament and more today, we've seen a continual pointing to the resurrection as the key to not only understanding Christ's lordship, but also having any sort of biblical worldview which grounds us in the providential power of God. Again, so it's, what we've been building up to is that the resurrection points us to is the key not, to, not only to understanding Christ's lordship, but also having any sort of ability to view in our sufferings, especially in our sufferings, to bring about an enduring, true, fire-tested faith that sees his providential power in all things and anything. And what's really sad is when we meet self-proclaimed Christians that are like this, Right? And some of you may have had nervous laughter because you're thinking, that kind of sounds like me, right? But so here is what that's an indication of, is when we see folks like this. It's an indication of a heart that has been overwhelmed at the knowledge of what Christ can do for them in this life, but has no inkling of what it means to look at this life through the scope of eternity with Christ. Because when we have that proper perspective, when we can look at the things that happen in this life, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it may be, when we can look at that and say that God is providentially working all of it for his glory and our good, when we have that proper perspective, there is nothing in this life that can therefore satisfy me. And there is also nothing in this life that can harm me or take away my joy and make me lose my joyful hope in Christ. And the, the thing which allows us to have that proper perspective, which we, that lens which we continually look through for all of those things, is the resurrection. And that's what the authors of the New Testament, time and again, even the apostles, as they had to be pointed after seeing the resurrected Christ, Christ then points them to the scriptures to reteach them all that he had taught them while he was with them. So that they could not only see him, the resurrected Christ, standing before them, but that, so that they could see him, the resurrected Christ, as preached in his word. And that is what Peter then goes out to Jerusalem as he 
begins to preach his first sermon, he points them not to just say, I saw him myself, but he points them to the word. He says, this Christ whom you crucified. He says, I can tell you that our father David has a grave and I can show you where it is. We don't come to have a proper perspective, a, uh, an understanding of Christ's lordship, a joyful hope of eternity without a proper perspective on the resurrection of Christ ever before us. And that's why I think so frequently those of us who love the Lord and, and seek him through his word consistently and are, are consistent in our repentance of, of seeking to put to death the flesh and, and live a new life in Christ, that we too can can kind of fall into this trap because we allow the resurrection, to, it's, it's kind of always there, but sometimes we allow it to just fade into the background and focus on so many other things. And that's what I want us to see this morning. What I want us to see and be overwhelmingly compelled by is five imprints of the resurrection that Peter that I, that I see as I see them in the text this morning. There might be more there. You might see some more, right? But, so it's not a totally comprehensive list that I'm giving you this morning. But five imprints of the resurrection. That's how you see your outline. We've already gone through those first two points, those first two truths. And now I want us to see five imprints of the resurrection, five ways in which the resurrection permanently alters the mindset, the actions, and the life of the believer. And as we walk through these verses, I want to make sure and highlight for us the purposeful and e eternal language used to describe all of this. So now we're heading into unpacking our text for this morning. Verse 3, we'll pick back up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Pause right there. Now the phrase I want to hone in on, you might have heard me kind of emphasize it there for a minute. I want to, I want to focus on this phrase because it's the suspension bridge that allows us to be able to get to the other side of this gorge, right? So this is, this is the suspension bridge and we got, to, we got to see how this is what kind of gets us to the other side. So that phrase there that I'm talking about is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in other words, if Jesus Christ were not risen from the dead, we are not born again, is what he puts right there. And he says that before, to a living hope. So, we, so our hope is therefore what? Dead, right? So nor do we get anything else which comes after this phrase, as we'll see. So he's... he's Showing here, and this is Peter, saying that we have been born again to, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So but again, before I emphasize kind of some of the impacts of this, I wanted us to see how he lays that out. It's like, if you don't have this, then nothing else that I say before or after this matters, Right? So, if, if we don't see the resurrected Christ, believe the resurrected Christ, cling to the resurrected Christ, 
then there is no need for rejoicing in God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're still dead in our sins and actively rebelling against Him, so let's read verse 3 again with that as our lens and our understanding. So verse 3 begins with this decree. You can see an exclamation mark there in your Bible, which means it's given with emphasis. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause. So, when we see this word of blessing, we see this throughout the Bible, right? This word of blessing, but we oftentimes see it in this context as referenced to God. Understand first that there is nothing that we could possibly do, give, accomplish that would bless God in our traditional understanding and traditional sense of the word. We cannot give God what he does not already have. This is a reciprocation of blessing. So it's saying, he has blessed us with all things in Christ. Therefore, we respond by blessing him in the only way that we can, and that is to praise his glory. The point of God making himself known in our hearts is not for us to merely know him and then rest silently satisfied in our knowledge of him. God makes himself known in our hearts that we might resoundingly declare his mercies. And that's the first of these five imprints of the resurrection. You'll see there. The resurrection keeps us in a state of praise. So wherever you're at in life right now, Peter's writing this from the heart of the land of persecution. From Rome, he's writing to those who are on the outskirts of the faith. So both heavily persecuted in this context. So wherever you're at in life right now, God providentially brought you to this station in life, not for the purpose of self-loathing, self-pity, indulgence. He has providentially directed each and every one of our lives to bring himself glory no matter where we are crying out blessings to him from. So whether it's in the valley, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's on the mountaintop, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question which we must challenge ourselves with is, is that my focus at all times? Or is my focus all too easily distracted toward myself? When we are unwaveringly focused on the resurrection, we can't help but be resoundingly reciprocating praise to God in all things. We can't help but see His praise and glory in all things. We can't help but want others to see his praise and glory in all things and to live in that light. We see this same sentiment in Ephesians 1. You can turn there or it'll be on the screen behind me. You can make a note of it. Ephesians 1, verse 15. We see Paul laying out the reason 
by which he is, he is praying for the church at Ephesus and in, imploring the church at Ephesus and trying to lay out such a beautiful theology of who God is and who we understand God to be through understanding who Christ is. For this reason, Ephesians 1.15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's giving thanks to God the Father for his brothers and sisters and their enduring faith. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And then what does he hope to happen because of that? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And where did we see the working of his great might? Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power. So again, this reason for rejoicing, for imploring fellow brothers and sisters to endure in the faith and to be encouraged in the faith. We must keep the resurrection at the forefront. And when we do that, it results and it keeps us in a constant state of praise. We continue on there back again in 1 Peter. Pick back up. We're still in verse 3. According to, so we've seen blessed. What is the immediate effect of God's action through his mercy? Our salvation. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's our salvation. What's the ongoing effect of that salvation? A living hope. Well, what was the means by which he acted on his motive and caused these effects? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, again, if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation for us. Thus, the second imprint of the resurrection is that it has secured our salvation. And this is Peter's message to these believers. This is Peter's message from the moment that he began to preach. God has saved you, called you to himself for this very purpose, that you might endure the shame and pain of this persecution that he has chosen to put you in, thus bringing many more sons to glory. And as you endure, don't look to the present but rather consider the resurrected Christ and look forward through that lens. This is why we don't need to get our theology from newspapers. This is why we don't need to lose our minds about wars abroad, mounting legislative pressure against the Christian worldview. We need to be aware of these things. Absolutely. Knowledgeable. But we don't allow these things to turn the steering wheel of our life. And here's where we stand as those who have been ransomed by God for this very purpose. That we might live in such days as elect exiles. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, that we might live in such days. Secure in our salvation and praising God and the power of the resurrection. This is it, church. So don't allow yourself to look at the headlines, to hear the news, and to think, oh my gosh, what is happening? How, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? It's like, look, God has saved me, called me to himself through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He's made himself known in my heart. He's called me to live in such a time that I might make his glory known, no matter what the headlines read, no matter what legislation passes, that we might preach the truth, proclaim the truth, and live the truth of the resurrection. How else has the resurrection impacted us? Pick back up in verse 4. So we have, we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that word inheritance, it should automatically do a few things in our mind. If we kind of understand, know what that word is, right? It should make us think of some great reward, Right? That's obvious. However, it immediately does what? It throws our minds into the future. Because when you think of an inheritance, it's something that I will gain later on in life. At some future time. Now, many of you may have already received an inheritance from a loved one in some way, shape, or form. But this inheritance is, is, is future-looking. That is affirmed as you read all the ways in which this inheritance is described. So, the first descriptive term there is imperishable. That doesn't mean that it's going to be given tomorrow, right? Or for when Peter's writing. He wants them to think that this inheritance is long-lasting, right? I mean, it has no expiration date. There is no moth or rust or decay that, which can impact it. The inheritance is good for eternity. What's the next descriptive word? Undefiled. So this inheritance is perfect. Has not, nor can it be tainted in any fashion. Unfading, does not diminish over time. Kept in heaven for you. Once again, pointing us to the truth that this inheritance is already ours, but not yet fully received. Again, the already, but not yet. That this inheritance, it's guaranteed for you. But I, it's kept where? It's kept in heaven for you. That's the inheritance. But right now, I'm an exile. I'm a sojourner in a foreign land, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But I am not alone. Why? Because I am being guarded through faith. So this is actively guarded through faith for a salvation, a rescue to be revealed in the last time. Now, don't be thrown off by that wording there, right? This does not indicate a secondary salvation, but this is the, the completion of our salvation. We call this our glorification, right? So you have salvation, sanctification, 
glorification. And the glorification comes on the last day. So the emphasis here is that this inheritance is guaranteed to those who are in Christ. And that on that last day, as they are being kept through the muck and the mire of a world that is embroiled in sin and darkness, that on that last day, they can look toward this inheritance. So that no matter what happens in the muck and the mire, it can't tarnish, it can't fade, it can't perish our inheritance that we are constantly looking forward to. And so that brings me to that next impact of the resurrection that is our guarantee of future glory. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, we saw in Colossians 1, that as Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits, he is the firstborn, so he is do all things, and as he is the first fruits, therefore there is a crop to come, and that is his church. In the present, I can live confidently knowing that I am guarded through the faith given me by my Savior. So there is nothing that man nor the ruler of this world can do to me which can ultimately detract from my salvation, nor my purpose, which is the glory of God. In the present, I can take courage by looking to the beautifully perfect inheritance which awaits me in the end. So believer, don't allow yourself for one minute to look at what is going on in the world and become overwhelmingly distraught. Unbeliever, look to the world and see how empty it has left you. And then see the inheritance that awaits you through the resurrected Christ. So what should be our response how should we live in light of these realities? Pick back up verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. So let's understand what biblically we mean by a little while. Because our life is described as a vapor, just a, right, gone. So a little while is a lifetime. So don't think like, oh, this is only going to last days, right? No, it's that we are living in the midst of a world that is embroiled in sin. Therefore, there is no end to the constant pressure and the persecutions of that world against those who want to live countercultural to it, according to the gospel. But what are we called to do in that little while? In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, here's the next good one, if necessary, who determines the necessity of our sufferings and persecutions? I'll give you a hint, it's not us. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. For what? What, what does that mean? How do we, so we know we live in response by rejoicing, but what is that producing in us? Verse 7. That the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you see the one who is raised and who has sealed and guaranteed all this and has given you this ability to rejoice in these various trials, when you see him, that will be the finished work of your faith which has been purified and tested by fire. In this, you rejoice. You've been looking for the silver lining. You've been pleading with God to reveal his purpose. You've been looking for that way out. How about stopping all of that and start rejoicing in your salvation? That's the idea here. Don't look for the way out, but rather rejoice. This is what you sing about, talk about, breathe about. When you lie down, when you wake up, when you come in, when you go out, walk along the road. This is the driving force behind everything we do. Rejoicing in our salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So again, the question is, is that you this morning? Because I can confidently stand before you and say that that is not consistently me. Just rejoicing in this little while. I am all too often distracted by my own wanderings and musing, all too often led astray by my own ambitions, and I am constantly in need of being reminded of this truth and graciously redirected by the truth of God's word. So where I've wandered off the well-litten path of truth, I'm always in need of being returned right back. And as God's word redirects me, I'm reminded that in Christ, I've been given a true and pure joy without limits. And that's the next impact there on your outline, is that resurrection results in boundless, enduring joy. So this is not a joy which expires when it comes under fire, but it's a joy that's purified by the fire. And rejoices in the midst of the fire. As we endure through our trials, which last the eternity of our earthly life, as God sees necessary, our faith is purified by those fires to produce in us a joy that cannot be found in this world, but which looks constantly to, the, to eternity with our Creator as our inheritance. Are you seeking that joy this morning? Are you approaching your trials with that type of confidence and tenacity? Filled with glory. So as we continue to express our faith in him through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, our faith is continually tested by fire that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Concerning this salvation, he continues to say in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about that grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now that's the end of that sentence. We're going to come back and just kind of unpack some of that because that's it's hard to kind of wrap the mind around, right? But verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you 
through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So as the resurrection was preached to you, as the gospel was preached to you, you have now seen the truth which the prophets were preaching about. And as it was revealed to them, they weren't, they weren't preaching for themselves, but they were announcing this as a glory, a future glory to come. That many more may come to know the Lord and be grafted into the family of God. And that's the church. Things into which angels long to look and understand the will of the Father. And this is the final point, the final impact there is that the resurrection propels the joy of missions. And I, want, I want us to see where I, I, I point that out. Is that here he's saying that those who were given the first knowledge of the gospel of the re coming resurrected Christ did not even know or fully understand what they were preaching. But in that, they realized that they were preaching not for themselves or the people that they were immediately preaching to, but for future generations that would come to know the glory of God the Father through the resurrected Christ. The resurrection propels the joy of missions. That's missions. That's, that's realizing that what has been given to us in these fragile clay jars is not meant to be held here, but is meant to be heralded to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look to Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi is like, God, I don't really know what you're talking about here, but I know that it's going to be great. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Zechariah is like, Who's that king? I would like to know, but it's, for, it's not for me to know, right? So they know in part, but it was revealed to them. They weren't preaching for themselves, but for you. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah is like, Man, that's going to be awesome. I wish I, was, I could just fully grasp it. That's what Jeremiah said. Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Go on to verse 10 of chapter 53. Yet it was the when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were preaching not for themselves, but you. And this great treasure has been placed in these fragile earthen vessels. Those things which the prophets knew in part, which the angels longed to look, the will of the Father, we have come to know 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Providentially planned from eternally past, fulfilled in Christ on the cross, stamped by his resurrection to be shown into our hearts that we might joyfully glorify him for eternity future. He is the first fruits and the firstborn. And let us rejoice in the preeminent resurrected Christ. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. We praise you for these realities that you have made known to us what angels long to look into, which the prophets long to know in full and see the gospel, the light of the good news of Christ on the cross and raised from the dead. As we move now, God, into our time of response, I pray that you would move each heart in here to respond as you so will. For those of us who know you, I pray that you would move us into response by rejoicing, saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as we sing this song. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would move them to repentance and declaring that same thing for the first time. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.